I want to preach this morning on the theme, O Little Town of Bethlehem. O Little Town of Bethlehem. You know the words, right? You know the lyrics? O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. You may not know the history of this hymn. Phillips Brooks in the 1800s is an, Angli- uh, an Episcopal priest in Philadelphia and then later Boston. And Brooks takes a trip to the Holy Land. He's so inspired by what he sees there. He's inspired by Bethlehem that he writes this four stanza poem. And in 1868, for the Christmas Sunday school program of his church, he has this poem written and he asks his organist, Louis Redner, uh, to uh, create a tune for it. I know it's not like the headline of the story, but can we just talk about like this pastor writes a poem and expects the musician to suddenly be able to create a tune for it. We're going to rehearse it next Sunday. Again, I know it's not the point. Snyder, I have written a poem. Uh, he, he writes, uh, Lewis Redner writes about the, that moment from the organist's perspective of this whole thing. He says that Mr. Brooks came to me on Friday and said, Redner, have you ground out that music yet to O Little Town of Bethlehem? I replied, uh, no, but you should have it by Sunday. On Saturday night, I was concerned. <laughs> uh, he says that late in the middle of the night, he heard an angel strain whispering in his ear. Um, and seizing a piece of music paper, I jotted down the treble of the tune as we now have it. And on Sunday morning before going to church, I filled in the harmony. Again, I know it's not the point, but can we just talk? The dude on the way to church is like, yes, and now I will create the rest of the hymn. It's not hard. Music is easy. Anyway, neither Mr. Brooks nor I would have ever thought the carol or the music would live much past 1868, but it did. And I think the re- part of the reason it does is it captures so well that first night in Bethlehem. It's an average night. There's literally nothing that should be shocking about Bethlehem that night. That's the whole point. Uh, 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 Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. Y'all, they're not just in a deep sleep. It's deep and like dreamless. The whole town popped a melatonin and they're completely out while the greatest event in human history is happening. They're sleeping right through it. That's the point of O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's asleep. It's silent. And yet, in thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. I don't know what kind of stars are loud. Mr. Brooks doesn't tell us. But the stars silently go by. Yet, yet, in thy dark streets shineth what? The everlasting light. You guys don't realize, literally, the hopes and fears of like all the years are met in thee tonight. And you guys are like, yeah, it's like Tuesday. It's a school night in Bethlehem. Nobody's hanging their stockings with care by the fire, right? They're just going about their business. Nobody's out of school. It's just a regular old ho-hum night. And the, the, the God Almighty is becoming human flesh. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. First thing, if you're a note taker, I want you to jot down a couple things, three things. Bethlehem is the story of a place. Bethlehem is the story of a place. I want you to see in the Old Testament where Bethlehem is predicted to be the birthplace of Messiah. Go to the Old Testament. Look at Micah. Turn to Micah chapter 4. This is going to be our text for today. We'll get into Micah 5, which is the prediction proper. But we've got to work up to it. In Micah 4... Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, and because I wanted to put Isaiah in as a Christmas sermon, but I thought that's probably too much Isaiah in one year, so this is my way of getting Isaiah in through the side door. 
Isaiah and Micah were uh, contemporaries, and they prophesied to about the same group of people about the same time. This is 700 years before Christ. Got it? And here's what he writes to the people. Now many nations are assembled against you. Who's you? Well, it tells you. Zion, the city of Jerusalem. Many nations are assembled against you, Jerusalem, saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. And they're there at the gate. um, Now, if you were here for the Isaiah series, you're about to be rewarded because you know exactly what he's talking about. Do you remember? Isaiah prophesied the same thing. Do you remember the Assyrian invasion? Do you remember siege warfare? Anybody remember this? They're gathered around. Do you remember the Rabshakeh? Does anybody remember from this summer the trash-talking Rabshakeh? Even if you didn't, just be like, yeah, Tom, we remember all of the sermons perfectly. That helps me out. Yeah, they're gathered around, and what's he doing? He's trashing talk. uh, Trashing talk, which is a thing they did back then. He got so excited, his words were juxtaposed, and he said, we're going to tear down your walls. We're going to, what are we going to do? We're going to defile you, gaze upon you, right? The idea they're going to pillage. And uh, 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 do you remember the Rabshakeh's, one of his trash talks was, um, we'll spot you thousands of chariots. Oh, that's right. You don't even have enough soldiers to put on them. So even if we spotted you chariots, you still couldn't beat us. We're high and mighty, and we're the Assyrians. And Micah's prophesying, don't you worry about them. Why? Because in all their pride, look at the next verse. They didn't count on one thing. They slept on God. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. And all your planning, your enemies that are gathered against you in 2020, some of you feels like it's got a lot, all your enemies are gathered against you, but they left out something. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't know what he's doing. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So I know it looks like Assyria is at the gate, and I know it looks like they're going to destroy you. No, no, no. They're coming in like kernels of wheat, and you are fixing to grind them into nothing. So arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I'll make your horn iron and your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And that is literally exactly what happened. One night, the angel of the Lord came and struck down 185,000 Assyrians. They were, the remaining were scared to death, ran home. They left all their wealth, and they just walked out and plundered the spoils, and all that wealth was now devoted to the Lord exactly what happened now also if you're in the isaiah series you'll also understand this you'll know how prophecy scriptures work if not i need to catch you up the prophet would look out into the future and they would often see the future as one big mountain but as you go through the future as you live through history you realize there are hundreds of miles between mountain ranges it looks like one big mountain and the prophet predicts it as one big mountain but it's actually going to be revealed in stages that's why when you read prophecy sometimes it's like whiplash in one verse after the next it's like they'll predict something usually the prophets start with something that's happening right then and there like in this case the invasion of the assyrians then in the very next verse sometimes in the same verse they'll jump forward 100 years then they'll predict something that'll happen in a thousand years. Then they'll predict something that hadn't happened yet. So they do that, and here they're doing it in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now they're talking about the Babylonian invasion, and they don't have any troops left. That's why they say, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. What is daughter of troops? In other words, like, we have no soldiers left. So, like, gather the Girl Scouts. Well, you know, they're armed with, you know, Finments and, and, and siege is laid against us. They've taken our leader, the judge of Israel, the king, strike him on the cheek. And that's exactly right. You can read about the Babylonian captivity. They take him off into exile, but you. That's not the end of the story. And here, here's where we get this prediction. You're going to go into exile, but here's something that's going to happen 700 years from now. 
But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Who? Bethlehem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when kings would make a list of all the towns they conquered, they wouldn't even mention Bethlehem. Bethlehem is so small, they have to list its county, not just its town. It's in Ephratah. It's in the region of Ephratah. If you went to Bethlehem, there's a Dollar General and a Jacks. Like, there's nothing there. You understand? They, they, they have to list it by the region. So they call it Bethlehem Ephratah, just so you know what on earth he's talking about. It's, it's a map.town. It's a no-account town. And yet from you, who are so little, you don't even get mentioned in the Wikipedia page on Holy Land. You don't even get mentioned, but from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up. Okay, so they're going to be in exile until when? Until she who is in labor has given birth. Then, and here I think he jumps ahead to the second coming of Jesus. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And here I think he means Jews and Gentiles alike. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Bethlehem is the story of a place. If you want to amaze your friends with Bible trivia, ask them, where's the first place in the Bible a very pregnant wife and her husband are making their way south to Bethlehem to have a baby? A very pregnant wife and her husband traveling south. And they'll say, well, I know exactly who it is. And then you say, would you like to put money on it? And then, I'm just kidding, don't do that. And then uh, they will say, you're obviously talking about the pregnant wife who's great with child headed to Bethlehem that can only be Mary and Joseph. You'd be wrong. It's the story of Jacob and Rachel. The first mention of a pregnant wife and a husband traveling south, two Jews traveling south to Bethlehem to have a baby, is Jacob and Rachel. I can show you in Genesis 35. In Genesis, the 35th chapter, then they, that's Jacob and Rachel, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel, so his children, his sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob are the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is Jacob, Jacob is Israel, Finkel is Einhorn, it's the same person. When Jacob and Rachel journeyed from Bethel, okay, so Bethel's here, they got to go south to get to Jerusalem, Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem, got it? So Bethel is Huntsville, Jerusalem's Coleman, this is Hansville, we're just traveling down I-65 of the Holy Land. And Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, remember Bethlehem is Ephrath. They have to name it by the county. We'll see that in just a, a verse or two. Rachel went into labor, oh, and she had hard labor. That's an understatement because unfortunately the next verse tells us, and when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear. She's trying to encourage, you, you have another son. Her first son was Joseph. This is her second son. But verse 18, to no avail, as her soul was departing, for she was dying. She died to give birth to this last tribe of Israel, this last son of Jacob. She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Got it? Ephrath, Bethlehem, same thing. And Jacob set up a, now he does something unusual. It wouldn't be unusual to us. We mark graves all the time. Unusual for this time. Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Everybody got the story? There's still two hours walk left to Bethlehem. Rachel can't go a step further. She goes into labor. She dies in childbirth. And with her dying breath, she names him Ben-Oni. What does Ben-Oni mean? Son of my sorrow. 
It makes total sense, right? She's given birth to this baby, beautiful baby boy, but she won't live to see the baby boy grow up. So it's great joy, but it's deep and abiding sorrow because she knows she's about to die. So she names him son of my sorrow, Ben-Oni. But later, we don't know when, but at some point, Jacob is like, well, I mean, that's cool and all, but you can't name the kid son of my sorrow. Can you imagine that kid in fourth grade? Have you met sorrow? He's a laugh a minute, that, Right? So Jacob does him a solid, and Jacob's like, look, let's rename the kid Benjamin. So it's still Ben, but this time it's Ben, which means son. Son of my right hand. You, it says here, according to the scripture, I want you to see there's so much rich significance here. I want you to see, the, 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 the Bible says they marked Rachel's grave with a pillar. They made a tombstone, and it says it's there to this day. It is still there to this day. Did you know that? You can go to Rachel's tomb. It's heavily guarded because of all sorts of geopolitical things at work and warring. But I, I, if I understand correctly, there's one, basically a bulletproof armed bus that will take pilgrims there once a day, heavily guarded, to visit Rachel's tomb. It's popular, particularly popular among Jewish tourists. Why? Because Jewish literature to this day is quick to point out Rachel was not buried back home in Bethel. And she wasn't buried all the way in Bethlehem, certainly not in Hebron in the promised land. She was buried in the middle of nowhere. She was buried on the way. If you will, she was buried in exile. Already, but not yet. Buried in exile. Rachel among Jews, Rachel's considered sort of the mama of all exiles. And that's the same path that exiles would have taken. They would have gone right past Rachel's tomb on the way to exile to Babylon. Even today, feeling disenfranchised and marginalized. Uh, 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 Women who have trouble having a child, they'll go to Rachel's tomb and they'll pray. She's, you know, the the, the idea that she's, you you know, uh, the place to pray and weeping and crying out. I'm in exile. I don't yet have what I need. Now, ponder this. The, The road goes right through. I mean, Bethel, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. It's right there. So that means, fast forward from, from, from Genesis, fast forward 2,000 years to another young Jewish couple, all the way up in Nazareth. It's 90 miles from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. That means they come straight south, and at some point they get to Bethel, which means house of God. Just to be clear on the symbolism, Mary and Joseph travel from a place called house of God to Bethlehem. Jesus comes from the house of God to be that. Okay. So it comes from Bethel and has to walk through Jerusalem and on to Bethlehem to be uh, uh, registered, which means Mary and Joseph walk right past what? It's there to this day. They walk right past Rachel's tomb. Now don't, don't you wonder, don't you wonder, there Mary walks right past, what is going through her head? The child in her womb will be the answer to Rachel's weeping. Maybe even there were some pilgrims there crying out and praying, God deliver us, deliver us from exile. The baby inside of her would be the very answer to those people's prayers as they're walking past. Don't, you wonder, right? You, you almost want to ask her, Mary, did you know? <sighs> like, did you, I mean, did you know that you, your baby was going to be the answer to those people as you walk past Rachel's tomb, rich with symbolism, and to think that Rachel died, and even the, even the names, Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, Benjamin, son of my right hand, was the baby born in Bethlehem? Let me ask you, was he not Ben-Oni and Benjamin? Was Jesus of Nazareth not the son of sorrow? Wasn't Jesus a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief? Didn't Simeon look at Mary and say, a sword's going to pierce your soul. There will be great sorrow. He's been Oni. But after the cross and after the resurrection and after he ascended on high and sat down, where did he sit? He sat down at the right hand, Benjamin. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He is been Oni. He is Benjamin. Jesus of Nazareth. Bethlehem. 
is the story of a place. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem, house of bread. Didn't Jesus say in John 6, I'm the bread of life? Ephrathah, fruitfulness. Didn't Jesus say in John 15, 1, I'm the true vine? Bethlehem's the story of a place. Bethlehem appears again in the pages of salvation history. Do you remember that poor woman living over in Moab? She didn't want to go to Moab, but her and her husband in the Great Depression of the 30s, like before Christ, many, many 30s, uh, there was famine in the Holy Land, so they had to go to Moab and had a pretty good thing going there. Uh, Their uh, two sons grew up big and tall and strong. They both got married. They married Moabite women. Uh, but that, that, that's okay. Seemed to have a happy family there until tragedy strikes. Do you remember this story? Her name was Naomi. You remember Naomi? And she's over way off away from her home in the Holy Land. She's in Moab and her husband dies. That's okay. She's got these two sons to take care of her. Both the sons die. And uh, Naomi looks at the, now she's penniless. She's in Moab. She looks at these two daughters-in-law and she says, look, we got nothing. There's nothing for us. I'm going to go back to the Holy Land and I'm, I can maybe find a family member to take me in. You two girls, there's nothing for you in the Holy Land. Y'all go back to your families back in Moab. And one of the daughters is like, great, peace. Ooh, I was hoping you'd say that. Uh, and walks right off the pages of salvation history. The other one, you remember this? The other one was a, a woman named Ruth. And she says, no, no, no. Now where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. And so they make their way back to the Holy Land. And of all the places they could go, imagine, wouldn't you know the town that they're from that they need to go back to, and they need, and their only hope is that they can find a kinsman redeemer, someone to take them in to give them what they've lost, a hope and a future and a life of love and a land and a promise and a home. I mean, when they go back to Bethlehem, it is the Old Testament's original Hallmark movie. They go back. And there Boaz sees Ruth in the field, and wouldn't you know, right? Wouldn't you know, God arranges all this, and Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Bethlehem's the story of a place, and Christian, can you not still find in Bethlehem your kinsman redeemer? To this day, is not the one from Bethlehem your redemption to give you everything that was lost, hope and future and love and a land and a home. Bethlehem is the story of a place. Well, Ruth and Boaz grow up, and they had a boy named Obed. Obed grew up, and he had a son named Jesse. And Jesse grows up and has eight, count them, eight sons living there in Bethlehem. They're in this little map dot town nobody's ever heard of, minding their own business in the reign of King Saul. When Samuel is dispatched as a prophet, he's supposed to go to anoint the next king of Israel. And God says, you can go to Bethlehem. He says, excuse me? You mean Jerusalem? Nope, Bethlehem. Lord, I can't, I can't even find Bethlehem on a map. God's like, well, I mean, ask Siri or something, but you, you got to find your way there, and you got to look for Jesse's kids. He's got the sons, and it's one of those sons. He goes out, he finally finds his way to Jesse, and um, Jesse's, I mean, incredibly flattered and can't believe it from this no-account town. Who am I, you know? And so he lines up his sons. He's like, probably this one, the oldest, tallest. I mean, if we're talking about a king here, and no, Samuel says, no, God says not him. Well, maybe this one. No. And 1 Samuel 16, 7, see, it turns out man and God evaluate very differently. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says man looks at the outward appearance, okay, and that's what men do. That's what humans do. We look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he says, not him, not him. 
lines up all these sons, not him. And finally, he's like, I may have misread what God was telling me because, like, these are all your sons and not a one of them's king. And then as a joke, I think, he says, you don't have your other sons out, do you? And Jesse's like, oh, yeah. Listen, I grew up as a middle child. Like, it's one thing to occasionally feel like you don't get enough attention. It's another thing to literally have to be reminded by the prophet that another son exists. You don't even think, oh yeah, he's out with the sheep, the run of the litter. Like how ignored do you have to be to be like, so you don't have any more sons? Oh, snap, yeah, I do have more offspring, yeah. Totally slipped my mind, I got a human that lives here. Like, you talk about forgotten and neglected and no account. Of course, when he comes, that's who God chooses. What's the point? Bethlehem is the story of a place. David, a no-account son from a no-account place, tells you this. No one is too little to be used of God. No one. And if you think you're too little to be used, oh, I'm too small to make an impact. Kids, sometimes, some of you, let no one look down upon you because of your youth. Do you know some of the greatest impact you'll have for the kingdom of God is right here in your school age years? Telling your friends about Christ, living for Christ, being faithful, telling the truth when it'd be a lot easier to tell a lie, standing up for God when it'd be a lot easier just to blend in with the crowd. Do you realize that, kids? You're not too little to be used of God. Hey, grown-ups, you think you, for anybody who says, I'm too little to have an impact, if you ever think you are too little to have great impact, consider the kidney stone. <laughs> Grown men brought to their knees by something just so little, right? Hmm? No one's too little. And it also shows us something else, a deep and abiding principle. Why Bethlehem? Bethlehem's a story of a place. Listen to the words of John Piper. God chose a stable so no innkeeper could boast. Ha! He chose the comfort of my inn. God chose a manger so that no woodworker could boast. See? He chose the craftsmanship of my bed. God chose Bethlehem so no one could boast. Ah, he chose us because of the greatness of our city. And he chose you and me unconditionally so that no human could boast. Bethlehem's the story of a place and it teaches justification by faith. The deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of Messiah. God does not bestow the blessings of salvation on people because, oh wow, he's really doing good. Or, oh wow, she's a great parent. Wow, this person's really doing great. No, you know, he does it so that no one can boast. No one can say, yeah, I, I mean, he had to save me. Well, look at what a great person I am. Look at how humble I am. Look at, uh, the, if you're saved, admit it. you you still can't get over the fact that you, you, God saved even me. So who gets the boasting? Who gets the glory? Glory to God in the highest. That's all that can be said. He saved even me. Bethlehem's the story of justification by faith. Do you know what that theological phrase means? I know that's justification by faith. Here's what that means. Justification means you are set right with God. You, a guilty sinner, is declared innocent in the sight of God, not because of anything you did, but because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death on the cross is credited as righteousness for you. So if you will receive that free gift of salvation, if you will believe Christ died for you and receive it, that's the whole point, believe it, by faith, you are justified and made right in the sight of God because of what Jesus did. What did you do? believed it. I believed it. 
I, I put my faith and trust, and I believe like I'm going to get into heaven because of Jesus. Can you believe that? <laughs> Incredible. What he did, it's all about him. That's justification by faith. Listen carefully. If you do not, I, so many Christians say they believe in justification by faith, and I think they believe it with their head. But in their heart and in their day-to-day living, they don't live justification by faith. They live justification based on how I've behaved over the last 72 hours. Justification by behavior. And I've, I've been pretty good. I haven't done too many sins, so I guess me and God are good. That's justification, literally justification by behavior. Justification by works. And some people, I, I know, some people, they're climbing the ladder, man. Some of you are, are trying justification by job. What do I mean by that? Man, if I can excel in my work and I can make it to the next level, then I'll be somebody. Yeah, then I'll, make, then, I'll, then I'll be. You know what you're doing? You're looking for justification. You're looking for worth. You're looking for significance in your job. I know young families that are struggling because they're living justification by parenting. If my kids turn out okay, if my kids turn out perfect, then, then it's a reflection on me. Then I've done good. I'm, I'm a good person. See that? I'm looking to earn my justification by parenting. Instead of walking in the free and easy rhythms of his grace, you are justified by faith. That's the only way to explain why there's so much pressure. There's so much, oh, God, these kids got to be perfect, and they got to be playing travel ball in Canada by the time they're three, or they're already behind. Whoa. It's okay. Everybody can take a deep breath. Excel. Do great. All those things. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But we're not justified by parenting. We're justified by faith. Now, uh, if you're not offended by that, I just haven't, I haven't picked your idol. I wish I could think of it. I mean, I try to be an equal opportunity offender. My hope is to offend all of you and offend me too. But you see, we're justified by faith alone. That's what Bethlehem shows. Bethlehem's a story of a place. Well, in the short time remaining, I want to give note takers a Christmas gift. I have been told in my time here from people who like to take notes in sermons that they love it when the outline follows a simple and organized plan. And it so rarely does. Uh, and so today, there are three points. And the first is the much longest. The other two we can do fairly quickly. But the, the three points are also alliterative. They all begin with a P. Bethlehem is the story of a place. Write this down. Bethlehem is the story of a plan. Bethlehem is the story of a plan. So to note takers, Merry Christmas. What is the plan of God? You could sum up what God wants. I think, I think you'd be the, theologically accurate to say it as simply as this. God wants to live with his people. That's it. That's what God wants. Now, you've got to unpack that. There's a lot there. Here's how I would write it theologically and, and, and with precision. Technically, a loving and just God wants to dwell with a redeemed people who freely unite themselves to him on a good earth forever and ever. But all I'm trying to say is God... God wants to live with his people. That's all God wants. He wants to dwell. And God can't dwell, obviously, where there's sin. I mean, otherwise, I mean, if heaven is a perfect place, it would be imperfect the first time a sinner went in there. Does that make sense? Like, you could have a perfect place, but if it's got sinful people in it, it's, uh, what do you call a perfect place that's ruined by all the sinful people? The beach. Here you have, right, it's, it's beautiful, it's paradise. The problem is what? Sinners, right? We all go down there and we wonder, man, uh, this would be great if it weren't for humans. Exactly, and you're part of it. I am too, okay? So heaven's got to be perfect. It's got to be populated by perfect people who freely unite to God. Well, they've got to be redeemed. And the whole salvation story is simply God 
wants to live with his people. That's the tabernacle. That's why in the end, in Revelation, I will be your God. You will be my people. That's all the pages of Scripture. Think about how many times Satan was just certain he had derailed the plan of God. The whole thing starts with God living with his people in a Garden of Eden, right? There's God, in an, Adam and Eve in this Edenic paradise, and God would occasionally walk through the garden in the cool of the day just to, to hang out, to be in fellowship. I mean, he created us out of an overflow of love that he experienced, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, from time eternity past, and he just wants to share that with us. He wants to dwell. And so they were dwelling. But when Satan got Adam and Eve, to, he tempted them, and when they ate from the forbidden fruit, he thought, that's it. The plan of God is derailed. But it wasn't. Genesis 3, there's a prophecy. No, we're just getting started. And he, t- he tells that old serpent, from the seed of the woman will come one who will crush that serpent's head. Well, surely Satan thought that the plan would be derailed by the time you get to Genesis. I mean, have you ever read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and the patriarchs? Have you read the soap opera that is Genesis? I mean, this is crazy stuff. You got brothers selling other brothers into slavery. And, and when Joseph is in the pit and when he's in the dungeon, Satan's like, now the plan is off. Nope, that was part of the plan because that got him into Egypt and saved everybody from famine. Oh, but now they're in Egypt and now surely the plan of God is off because now the people of God are slaves in Egypt. What are you going to do with that? I'm going to light a fire in a bush on the backside of a mountain in Midian and I'm going to meet a man who's given up on me named Moses who's tending sheep and I'm going to have him tend my sheep right on out of Egypt into the promised land. So the plan is not derailed. Well, surely it's going to be derailed with, with Rabshakeh and the Assyrians. And you know Satan was cheering when Rabshakeh and Micah 4, let her be defiled, let her gaze be upon Zion. And Satan's going, now we've got them. They're in siege. There's no escape. Oh, but see, you didn't know the thoughts of the Lord. You, you don't understand his plan. Bethlehem's the story of a plan. And surely after 400 years of exile, surely the plan is off. And best of all, think about it. Finally, when you come to the time of Christ, Satan's like, I can't believe it. I can't. Satan cannot believe his luck. I don't know if Satan was let in on this or not. Maybe he uh, heard from the angels that the Christ child would be born of Mary, born of a virgin. Mary, y'all, Mary is nowhere near Bethlehem. Mary is 90 miles north of Bethlehem in a town called Nazareth. Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth. Bethlehem is 90 miles south. Now, the prophecy says in Micah that the ruler will be born in Bethlehem. All the Jews know that, by the way. Everybody knows Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. So, so, so Satan thinks, well, this is perfect. She's 90 miles north and Joseph 90 miles north in Nazareth. And here's the thing. What would compel you to walk 90 miles south to anything? Let me just ask that. By foot, take a journey of 90 miles south. What would, what, would like, what would cause you to do that? And I know all the nativity scenes have like Mary on a donkey and Noble Joseph is like, no, no, you ride. I'll walk. I don't know where the donkey came from. My hunch is that like the donkey lobby got together and figured out how to get the donkey inserted in these stories. But Mary quite, quite possibly by foot, 90 miles. Now let me ask you, 90 miles south to Bethlehem. Forget the Christmas story for a second. Why would anybody from Nazareth travel 90 miles south by foot to Bethlehem? I could see if it were like the beach. Or if Bethlehem had this like burgeoning art scene. Like everybody's yelping Bethlehem. And there's nothing that nobody right now in Nashville is like, hey, you want to walk to Bug Tussle today? <laughs> nobody does that, right? You, you. On top of all that, let me ask you a question. What would compel you today 
to walk 90 miles south. Nothing. There's nothing that could compel you to walk 90 miles south. Let me ask you only one more question. Would you do it if your wife were nine months pregnant? We went from no to no way. <laughs> Are you insane? Yeah, honey, we're going to walk 90 miles south. I'm nine months pregnant. I know. I just had a crazy idea. To, no. There's nothing. And so Satan thinks the plan is completely derailed. The plan is off because the baby has to be born in Bethlehem and the baby can't be born in Bethlehem because he's 90 miles north of Nazareth. Joseph, Mary, what on earth could possibly compel you to walk that? The only thing, it would take an act of Caesar to compel you to walk that. Oh, yeah, uh, it says here in Luke, Second chapter, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You've heard that from Linus so many times that you have forgotten that's not normal. That never happened before. That's why he goes on to say this was literally the first one while Quirinius was governor. They registered when he did it because it makes no sense. Why on earth would you want to register everybody? Fine, even if you did, just Count the people. Why would you make them go to their ancient tribal hometown to register? They can totally register by mail. Like, why would you make them be taxed? Why make them travel to be taxed? You can, most commentators show that most of the early Jews had already signed up for online giving. Have you? <laughs> they can, that, that was just a joke. They can easily pay this by mail. So can you imagine? Can you imagine being Caesar one night? And he has this crazy thought. And he wakes up and he's like, out of nowhere. It's never been done before. He tells his advisors, I had an idea. Write this down in Latin. What was he speaking? If, okay. And they say, what is it? I would like to count all the citizens of Rome and I would like them all to be taxed. No problem, you're the boss. Literally, you are the boss. You are literally the boss of the entire empire. So that's no problem at all. That it? And let's do something a little out there. Anything you say, Caesar. Let's not just have them be registered and let's not just have them be taxed. Let's have them all travel to their ancient homeland and be counted there. Why? I have no idea. It just came to me. You sure you want that? That's what I want. Okay, great. And for the rest of his life, Caesar thinks, that was such a random idea. That was out of the blue. What a coincidence. But I don't believe in coincidences, do you? And I believe that Caesar's decree was not out of the blue. It was out of the blueprint. And imagine the howl through the demons of hell when Mary and Joseph begin that journey, getting closer and closer to Micah 5, getting closer and closer to the prediction of Bethlehem. The clock is winding down and they cannot believe it. Somehow, somehow, what's my point? When I say Bethlehem's a story of a place and Bethlehem's a story of a plan, listen carefully. This is my point. When Caesar appears to be ruling, church, God, make no mistake, is overruling. Y'all gotta help me. When Caesar appears to be ruling, God, can anybody testify? When Caesar looks like he's in charge, God is overruling. 2020 looks like a crazy year. Looks like the wheels went off. I know a lot of people say, man, this is crazy. We got with the virus and the, and the election and all this crazy stuff. Listen, while the nations rage, there is one sovereign. People are looking around going, is anybody in charge? Yes, Bethlehem is the story of a plan. Caesar is a pawn to God.
no, no account. This is the greatest leader in the Roman world. When Caesar, do you know that hymn, This Is My Father's World? Oh, let me never forget, don't ever forget this, that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Church, don't lose heart. Don't, I mean, don't give up. Keep the faith. Stay encouraged. Why? Because when it looks like these powers are ruling, God is overruling. And if he wants to get a pregnant couple of teenagers from Nazareth to Bethlehem, then he'll do it. Bethlehem's a story of a place. It's a story of a plan. And last thing, and i got to sit down. Story of a place, story of a plan. And I'm, I'm grateful it's a story of a place, and I'm grateful it's a story of a plan. Oh, but listen, the, the place would be nothing without this. And the plan would be nothing without this. Bethlehem is finally, ultimately, and most importantly, the story of a person. Story of a place, story of a plan, story of a person. One last time, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Rachel and Jacob are great, but that's not who I'm looking for. Ruth and Boaz are great, but they're not who I'm looking for. And King David is the greatest shepherd king Israel has ever known. But I'm looking for a greater shepherd and a once and future king. I'm looking for the one who's described who will come forth, God says, for me. For me, as in he will fully serve me. He'll devoted to me. He will represent me. David was great. And David was a man after God's own heart. But David sometimes followed David's own heart. You know what I mean? This, this servant will come forth and he will, be, he will govern for me. Everything you need to know about me will be in him. He will be my governor. He'll be my representative. And all through the New Testament, it says that Jesus of Nazareth, he, he is the image of the invisible God. He'll be a ruler. He'll be a king. A lot of kings that are born uh, in the world throughout history, they're technically, technically, they're not born kings. They're born princes. And they become kings. Now, some, some become kings at an early age. Josiah was made king, I think, at eight years old. So I'm not saying they can't become king or become king early. But technically, technically, if we're getting really technical, only Jesus, Lord at thy birth. When that little baby reached for a baby's rattle, he may as well have been reaching for a scepter. He was king from the jump. This business about he's a ruler who's from old, from ancient days. From of old means from the Old Testament. He was prophesied. He's from the Old Testament. He's, but this ancient of days is the same Hebrew phrase, everlasting, that's used to describe God. So his beginnings are from the pages of the Old Testament prophesied, but they're also from before time began. The whole Old Testament whispers his name. He was the prophesied seed of the woman that was going to crush the serpent. He was the, he was the ram caught in the thicket that was sacrificed so that the son could go free. He was the Passover lamb in Egypt. He was the, the true and better David who fought Goliath. He was the wisdom of Solomon. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the bright morning star and the rose of Sharon. He's the coming king. He's from old. But he's also from ancient of days. He's everlasting. John says it this way in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Get your head around that. God Almighty put on human flesh. God Almighty chose to wrap himself in human flesh. Incarnation, the enfleshment. God Almighty wanted to put on flesh and, and bone and muscle and tissue to be born. 
And when Jesus was born, it was the first time in human history the baby was older than his mama. <laughs> Wasn't it? He's the ancient of days. Let me say it like this. You know how when a baby's born, they say, oh, it looks just like your mom. He looks just like mama. When Jesus was born, it was the first time in human history that the baby didn't look like the mama. The mama looked like the baby. Oh, you're not hearing me. I'll say it this way. Jesus wasn't made in the image of Mary. Mary was made in the image of her baby Jesus. First time that's ever happened. First time that little baby in the womb, whoo, maker of the moon, author of the faith that can still make mountains move. That's the only time in human history you can look down to see heaven's best. Bethlehem is the story of a person. Oh, and if you know him, Brandon, come and lead us in a time of response, if you would. As he prepares to come, I want you to, I want you to ask yourself this question. Bethlehem is the story of a person, and if you know him, listen to me, if you know him, you won't need presents and lights and cookies and candy and trees to get you excited this week, will you? If you know him, you won't need anything man can sell you. Everybody's looking for peace. You're not going to find peace in what man can sell you. You're only going to find peace in what God can give you. Don't let what man can sell you this week take priority over what God can give you this week. Look, it's been a year. I get it. And, 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 and everyone's looking for peace, right? We're weary and sad, and a lot of people be, think, well, I, the one thing that could cheer me up is being together with a bunch of people or being together with family and friends. And because of this pandemic, it's, it's the one time family plans have been blown up, and, and many folks aren't able to gather. Like, you're not able to do all the things, I'm trying to say, you're not able to do all the things you'd hope you'd do. And you grieve the loss of that, and that's okay. It's sad. But if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you hear me? If you know him, and strip all this stuff away. And you don't need family gatherings to bring you peace, do you? I, it's sad, and you need to be with, uh, but you don't need that to bring And you don't need big parties to bring you peace. And you don't need presents to bring you peace. Why? What's the last verse of that prophecy? And he shall be their peace. Oh, he didn't come to bring it. He's it. He's everything. He's it. You know, these people say, you ever heard, we need to keep Christ in Christmas. Keep Christ in Christmas. I've said it. You've said it. I'll keep saying it. You can keep saying it. That's fine. You realize that's utter nonsense. You do realize that is utter nonsense. Keep Christ in Christmas. That's like saying, we need to keep air in breathing. I believe air is a big part of breathing. We need to keep water in the oceans. Y'all, let's keep water in the oceans. I'm sick of all these perfectly dry oceans. You say, Tom, that's nonsense. Water is the sine qua non of ocean. There's no such thing as breathing without air. And there's no such thing as Christmas without Christ. You can keep them there now, but I got news for you. It ain't Christmas. It doesn't exist. Christ is the sine qua non of Christmas. And without him, there is nothing. He is our peace. You can take all this away. I hope that encourages you. He's all you need. He shall be our peace. Bethlehem's a story of a place, story of a plan, story of a person. And if you know him, it's going to bring great encouragement. You know him. You know the man of Bethlehem. And if you don't know him, I mean, if you're watching this online or, or you're here and you don't know him, 
You can be saved today. The greatest thing that could ever happen in your life could happen on December 20th, 2020. Here we are in The Rock. You might be watching this online. You're sitting in your jammies, uh, you know, and you're watching this on the couch or you're watching this on the morning. That's crazy, isn't it? That, that's, I'm sorry. That's crazy to me. That the gospel can go out, that the word of God can be preached, and somebody can believe. Somebody can say, you know what? I believe. If you don't know him, you will never find the peace you're looking for. You will never find the peace you're looking for because it's in Jesus. That, that's why every Christmas you're looking for this holiday magic. And that's why every year you can't seem to find it. It used to be better, you think, when I was a kid. You're remembering. It's nostalgia. It's giving you away. Your, 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 your daydreams are giving you away. And you keep thinking, like, where is it? Why? It feels like this should make me happy and this should give me peace. And none of it does. You're looking for the echo of a tune you've never heard, the scent of a flower you haven't yet found. It's out there somewhere, and I'm telling you, it's the man of Bethlehem. And you will not have peace until you invite Jesus Christ into your heart, into your life. That's how it works. So, like, what? I just pray here in my couch, like, here, like, in my living room, watching you on this tape, like, I, I, here in the room, like, that's how it happens. That's exactly how it happens. That's the third verse of that hymn. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. That's how it works. Here's how Phillips Brooks says it. So God imparts to human hearts the wonders of his heaven. It's exactly how it happens. On a Tuesday morning when nobody else said it, just. Though no ear may hear his coming in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. It's absolutely how it works. Will you make him your peace today? Oh, do you know him? Do you know the, do you know the person of Bethlehem? Bethlehem's story of a place, a plan. He's a person, Jesus. Let's pray. God, grant to us who are hearing this, who know the person of Bethlehem, grant that 2020 might be the, might be the greatest, most peace-filled Christmas we've ever had because we know the person of Bethlehem and because we're sort of forced into some new traditions and some new ways of looking at this. God, if there's somebody here who does not know you, let today be the day. Let these meek souls open and receive Christ as Lord. You'll still enter in. You're still the place where the Redeemer can be found in Bethlehem. God, grant that, we pray. 